we've been talking about Jesus specifically as the Gospels present him. And you think, well, Jesus is Jesus, but, um, which is true, but each Gospel writer has presented Jesus through a different lens uh, based on who their audience is. And it's not that what they're presenting is a different Jesus. Uh, it's like anything else. If, I, uh, if, I, if you were outside and I asked you to describe this building, it would matter uh, a lot based on, one, where you were standing near the building, whether you're in the front yard or the backyard. And it would also matter about what things about the building were important to you, right? Like, oh, it has a high-pitched uh, roof with a cross on the front. Well, no, 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 it has vinyl siding, right? All these things would be true. It's just what you're seeing at that time. So that's why there's, there's a difference. And during uh, the time that the Gospels were written, there were three dominant cultures that existed in that part of the world, the, the Middle East, Israel, part of the world. Uh, there was the Hebrew culture, which we're very familiar with from our scriptures. They're highly religious, right? They had forms and prayers and uh, obligations and ceremonies and these kinds of things. They were devoted to one God, and they were waiting for a promised Messiah. And most of their life revolved around God and, and what happened at the temple in, in obedience to the laws, rules, and so on and so, so forth. The, uh, another culture that existed during that period of time was the Roman culture. And the Romans were the current ruling empire uh, based, obviously, out of Rome. They served a plethora of gods, multiple gods. Um, some of these we see in, in mythology and all these kinds of pieces. Uh, but for them... Uh, government and power were super important to them. So there was the Roman Senate and Julius Caesar and all these kinds of things. They also were very keen on their army. We know most things when you hear about Rome, you think of a Roman soldier, right? So power and government or power and authority were very uh, important to the Romans. That was their focus. And so Mark's gospel uh, resonated with them. Because we, as we talked last week, Jesus was a man, he was uh, proven to be the Son of God by what he did. He was a man of action, immediately, 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 right? And so it resonated with the Roman um, citizen. I mean, obviously there were some parts that didn't, uh, such as we talked about last week, Jesus' servant Messiah. Uh, the Romans, that part threw him, like servant Messiah, but... Overall, Mark's gospel appealed to them. And then the, the third uh, major culture that existed was the Greek culture. And they were the previous ruling empire that the Romans conquered. Okay, But for the Greek, the arts and the science were super important to them. So things like culture, philosophy, wisdom, reason, beauty, education, the arts and the science, these were super important to the Greek culture. Um, most of our philosophy and whatnot came from, start off from the Greeks. Um, anyway, uh, this particular painting has a lot going on and I can't unpack. I spent a whole semester in Bible college unpacking that painting, uh, which we're not going to do today. But it, it's, it's uh, profound for Greek understanding. Anyway, uh, our American culture is still deeply affected by all three of these cultures. Judaism, Roman, 
in Greek. You see it in all, you see almost all three of these in every aspect of our culture as Americans. Between religion, between arts and science, and between rule and power and authority, right? You see it, segments of this through all of our culture. But today, we're talking about the Gospel of Luke. And Luke's Gospel appealed to the Greek mind. It appealed because it was a complete story of Jesus. What we mean by complete, it started with John the Baptist, it went through Jesus's birth, it went through works he did, it went through his resurrection, it went through his ascension. It was, it was a complete, it didn't leave out pieces. Uh, it also was orderly. If uh, you remember last week, we said, hey, the Gospel of Mark really wasn't concerned about the proper order, it was just getting all of Jesus's teachings in there. But Luke wanted a complete, orderly, um, classical story of Jesus. And in that story, it depicts uh, the glorious beauty and the perfection of Jesus Christ, which was super important to the Greek mind. In fact, Luke mentions this purpose when he opens up in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, right? He says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he's saying, hey, uh, many people have, have written an account of Jesus. Right? They've, uh, they've either eyewitnesses or they've heard from eyewitnesses and they've put together who Jesus was and written this down. He said, many, many have done this. He said, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you. So he's saying he's investigated all, he's talked to eyewitnesses, he's thoroughly investigated, like, like a, uh, a doctor studying for their thesis, right? Like, he's studied these things. And so he's decided to write an account for the most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he's investigated, he's writing an orderly account for Theophilus, who is supposed to be a Roman official, um, historically, uh, so that he can have certainty of what has been taught. That's the purpose of why Luke wrote this gospel. Luke wanted to write an account of Jesus that was orderly and beautiful, that the Gentile mind, the Greek mind, could enjoy and also understand when it relates to the story of Jesus. Now, Luke does what both Mark and uh, Matthew and Mark did, and that's to present Jesus as the promised Messiah. When you read through, it's obvious. He points to, he says, the, there's the promised Messiah. Jesus is that promised Messiah. And there are a lot of similar teachings and stories uh, that we've already covered over the last couple of weeks. doesn't make any sense uh, to go over them again. Uh, but in Luke, there are a lot of uh, parables and teachings and stories that are unique to Luke. They're not found in any other uh, gospel account. And it's in looking at these stories, these parables that Luke put into his gospel, we're going to get the lens for which why Luke wrote and what, how Luke sees Jesus. Okay? And rem- re- let me remind you, it's not a different Jesus It's a nuance of Jesus that the other Gospels have not captured. And so, I'm going to show you, let's look at three of those right now. Three stories or parables that are not in any other Gospel. 
and it will help us understand the lens for what Luke is trying to communicate. The first of those is in Luke chapter 4, verse 24 through 30. Jesus has gone into the wilderness and been tested. All the other Gospels uh, say that, right? He, He gets baptized. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days. He deals with the devil. He comes out of the wilderness. This happens, Luke records this after that. He's the only one who does. Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he's, he's teaching, he's preaching. And they become offended by his teaching. They're kind of like, who is this? We know this guy. We know his parents. We know his family. Who does he think he is? Kind of thing. And Jesus says this, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. So he's saying, listen, you guys are rejecting me. You're my own people. I grew up in this village. I'm teaching you and you're rejecting me. And he says, hey, during Elijah's time there was a famine and there were a lot of widows in in Israel during this time. He says, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Man, this is inflammatory talk. Jesus is like, hey, I've come to you and you're rejecting me. And guess what? You know, in Elijah's time, he was rejected, so he went to a foreigner. In Elisha's time, he was rejected and he went to a foreigner. I don't know if it's, yeah, okay. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Because he's reminding them, like, hey, God didn't, God didn't come after any of you guys. He took care of the foreigner instead of you. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So this story is unique to Luke. And he brings out, like, hey, the Israelite people of Nazareth rejected Jesus. And in, in, in response, Jesus says, you did that to Elijah and Elisha too, and God went to the foreigner. It's interesting to tell a group of folks. The next story is in uh, Luke chapter 15. We're not going to read the entire chapter. I encourage you to, but it's the story of the prodigal son. And the story basically goes like this. There was a dad and there were two sons, and one of them uh, wanted his inheritance ahead of time. His dad gave it to him. He went off and he lived wildly partying, uh, prostitutes, probably doing drugs, any of that nighttime scene stuff that you've seen indulge in. Uh, He was out there doing it, ran out of money, spent it all. Uh, Ended up selling himself as a slave to feed pigs, was starving, came to his senses and said, I need to go back to my dad. I'll work for him because he at least treats his servants better than this. The other son um, stayed. He stayed, worked the family business, did what he could for his dad, just was kind of, I'm sure he wasn't perfect, but he didn't go off and live wildly. He hung out and did what he was kind of supposed to. So when the wild son returns, the dad runs out, forgives him, holds a huge celebration that he's back. And this gets the other son angry. And I think if you put it in the context where you've been the good person, You've been the person that took care of mom and dad. You're running the family business. Maybe you wanted to go out and live wildly, but no, you denied yourself you're here. 
And then this person, this brother of yours, who's squandered the, the, the inheritance of the family, who's given the family a bad name, comes back and your dad's throwing a party for him. It's like, what the heck, dad? Right? And so we see chapter 15, verse 32. The dad comes out and he talks to his son. He says this, But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Why do I tell the stories? Because this represents a lot for many of us here who maybe lived a life that was far from God and came to our senses in return. This resonates with us. And it should. But when you look at this in the context of of, uh, Israelite and a Gentile, the Israelites fall into the sun that stayed and the Gentiles the one that lived wildly and didn't care. And so looking through that lens, Luke is saying, listen, the Israelites were the the sun that hung around. The Gentiles were the sons that went out and lived wildly. And God is the father of them both. And when the Gentile returns, God's going to celebrate. This is, you see the parallel? Let's go on to the third one. Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 46. Jesus has been uh, crucified, uh, buried, risen from the dead. He's, he's meeting his disciples and he's chatting with them. He says this, he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This is unique. No one else records this except Luke. All three of these. So when you look at the three of these and what Luke is communicating, what is Luke saying? Luke is writing this, that Jesus is the Messiah not just for the Jew, but for the entire world. And that's important. That's important because up till then it was Jewish prophets who announced the Jewish Messiah. So you could say, well, Jesus came for the, to liberate the Jews. Jesus came uh, as the Savior of the Jews. Jesus came, he's, he was a Jewish carpenter. And Luke is pointing out, no, Jesus is is the Messiah for the Jews, but he's the Messiah for all people. That Jesus is someone the Gentiles can put their faith in, too. That the good news is the good news for everybody, not just the Jew. Praise God for you and me. I don't know how many of you in here are pure Jews. Uh, I don't think anybody, but there might be someone in here. The rest of us, if you're not, uh, this is good news for you and me. Because we, we, have Gentile, uh, we have Gentile blood. So, this is awesome news. And I don't think this is earth-shattering news to you. But at this point of time, Luke is presenting like, hey, yes, Jesus is the promised Messiah, but he's the Messiah for the, for the non-Jewish person as well. But there's, there's something else when we look at, at Luke's gospel that ties into this but helps drill it down a little bit more for us. Look at Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells, is telling this parable to his, uh, his followers about a Pharisee and a tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, he tells this story. To some who were confident of their own righteousness 
Remember, this is unique. This story is unique just to Luke. Uh, to someone, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. I think there's a connection issue, guys. Because I can advance in my slides, but I don't see it. You got it? Okay. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Man, we look at that and we go, what an arrogant prayer. Who would stand up publicly and say things like that in front of other people? Do they have no social uh, conscience? Even if you feel that way, why are you articulating that? Well, here's, here's the deal. This kind of prayer was actually common. It was actually common. Uh, the, the Jews have a book of prayer uh, similar to Christians, right? If, uh, we don't, we're not as familiar with that because of our Pentecostal roots. But for those of you who grew up in uh, either Catholicism or a mainline denomination, there's the common book of prayer, right? And there are prayers in there that you can find for a special occasion or a day of the week or time of day that you can turn to and read and adopt that prayer as yourself. That, that's common. The Jews have the same kind of book. And they have it, their prayers for uh, different times of the day. There's prayers for special occasions. There's prayers for special days, uh, sacrifices, all these kinds of things. And I want to read you a prayer that's found uh, it's a morning prayer recited by men, okay? And in modern times now, it's been changed and tweaked a bit, but some traditional Jews still read it. It reads this. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, who did not make me a Gentile. And then it's repeated again. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, who did not make me a woman. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the universe, who did not make me a slave. That's a recited prayer by Jewish men in the morning. Now, today that's been tweaked because they realize the cultural, uh, you know, terribleness of this. And uh, some of them say, blessed are you, Hisham, king of the universe, who made me who I am. And they've kind of... But this is a prayer expressing gratitude for one's station in life. Right? Um, this negative approach of thanksgiving, which is what they're doing, is thanking God, King of the universe, uh, contributes to and encourages a society where some people are more valuable than others. Right? And this, this value isn't based on what somebody does or what somebody thinks. Their value is purely based on something that's outside of their control, where they were born, how they were born. Right? It's terrible. It creates, uh, it creates this um, uh, elite class of people, and it creates, creates an outcast uh, section of people, and then it, it kind of puts people all in between. I mean, can you imagine if you were a Gentile woman born into slavery? 
I mean, it's this thought process contributes to a caste system in society where certain people, based on your, uh, your breed, uh, are more valuable than people of a different breed. This is horrible to us, but Luke here is recording this prayer, which was probably quite normal in the temple area, a morning prayer read off. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I'm not this. I thank you that I'm not that. I thank you that I'm not like this. And so Luke is bringing attention to this. Right? It's really quiet, huh? Can you imagine if you were born down the ladder? Like, I mean, in this system, basically, if you were a a Levite, a Pharisee, a religious person, and you were a a man, you were at the top rung. And then it just started going down from there. Well, and we see this in the vocabulary, even this morning in my devotional reading, Gideon. uh, The angel of the Lord came to Gideon, and Gideon was like, why are you coming to me? I'm part of the least tribe in Israel of the least clan in that tribe. I don't have the pedigree you're looking for, God. Right? So it was a common understanding in that culture that there's pedigrees of people. There's some at the top and there are some at the bottom. And man, if you, if you were a woman, a Gentile, uh, if you had leprosy, if you were sick, if you were blind, if you were born with a handicap, you were bottom rung. You had zero value to society. We see some of that in our society, don't we? In this parable, Jesus addresses it. Let's look at verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Wow, what's Jesus doing here? See, before, if you were top rung, I mean, that meant that God really, you were special. God loved you. And if you were bottom rung, you did something wrong. So you were far from God. That's evident in the disciples asking Jesus about the man who was born blind and was a beggar. What did this man do to be born this way? recognizing that that's a very low station in life and he must have really messed up or his family messed up for him to be born in such a place that God hated him. i got to believe today that there, there are times in your life that you maybe have asked God, like, why did you make me this way? Did you hate me? Why did you make me to think this way? Why did you make me? Because somehow the way you look the way you think, whatever it is about you that is, has nothing to do with anything that you can control, you find um, less than. Right? I've asked God that question about myself. Why do I think this way? Why couldn't I be like normal people? And society is pushed back a bit like that, like, well, what is normal and all of these kinds of things. But what we're articulating is is that there are some attributes that are more valuable than other attributes, and I wish I had that. So therefore, I'm going to change the way I look. I'm going to uh, dye my hair. Ouch. 
I'm, I'm going to go to the gym like a gym rat and work out because I don't like my body. I'm going to go have plastic surgery. I'm going to change my gender. And it's articulating, I don't feel good about myself because there's other things that are less than. And, Paul, and, and uh, Luke, Luke's coming after that. He says, listen, it's the tax collector, the guy on the low station that's walking away more pleasing to God than the arrogant guy who's so grateful for his station in life. I'm so glad I'm not like all these other people because I'm in a better spot with God than they are. And Jesus says he's actually not. Let's keep moving on because Luke puts a lot of these kinds of parables and stories in his gospel. In Luke chapter 1 and 2, records the birth of Jesus, right? In a society that valued that men were the head and then there was this trickle down of value, the Gospel of Luke recording Jesus' birth is through the eyes of whom? Mary. In that system, Mary didn't matter. But Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth through Mary's side of the story, not Joseph's. Matthew records Joseph's. Luke records Mary's. You think that's intentional? Interesting. Very interesting that if the society felt like, man, I'm so glad I wasn't born a woman, why would a woman's perspective, why would he care to write it from her perspective? What else do we see? In Luke chapter 7, verses, uh, well, all of chapter 7, uh, Jesus is at a party. He's at a party. And um, the story of, this is, again, this is a unique story to Luke. Uh, a woman comes in, and she begins to uh, anoint his feet and wipes it with her hair, and she's crying on his feet and these kinds of things. And hosting the party said this, when the, when the Pharisee, Um, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So the Pharisees judging her, man, this, this, first of all, she's a woman, and second of all, she's a sinner, and she's coming into my house and she's crying on his feet. If he was a real prophet, he would know that he shouldn't be touching or being engaging with her or conversation, she should be cast away. <clears throat> but Jesus corrects the Pharisee in verses 40 through 47. He tells a story about how, how the Pharisee has failed to do the things that this woman is doing for him. And then in verse 48 through 50, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's a crazy story. In that day and age, where not only was she a woman, but she had done something that labeled her as sinner, right? Whether she was prostituting herself or any of those other kinds of things, she wasn't just a normal woman. She was a sinner. And Jesus sticks up for her. 
and rebukes the Pharisee to his face. Remember, the Pharisee is top ladder guy, the most privileged in that society. Who knows, I don't know where she fell on the list, but she definitely was in the lower half. And Jesus stands up for her and says, knock it off. She's doing for me what you didn't do. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, is the story of whom? Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector. No, man, tax collectors were bottom-rung people because even though he was a, a, a man born as a Jew, he was siding with the Romans and taking money from his own people to give to the Roman government and then usually adding some percentage on there for his own profit. So he was despised. And Jesus is walking down and Zacchaeus climbs up the tree and, and, and wants to see who Jesus is. And Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house today. Like, that's not, that's not done. That's just not done. Because he's lower, rabbi is higher, rabbi does not eat with sinners. Because he defiles himself by eating with sinners. And he goes to Zacchaeus' home, and it's an amazing interchange in verse uh, 19, verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stands up and repents, and in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. One more I want you to turn to. Luke chapter 23, Jesus has uh, been crucified. He's hanging on the cross, and one of the thieves begins to taunt him. And Luke records this story where no one else does. In verse 42, uh, earlier verses, one of the thieves defends Jesus, then says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, we don't know why the guy was hanging on the cross, thief, murderer, whatever he was. He defends Jesus, and Jesus says, you're going to be with me today. What is all of this saying? Uh, uh, these are just a few. When we, when we start to look through Luke, we see that Jesus praises a centurion's faith, a Roman uh, military guy. He praises his faith. He touches a leper who's considered unclean and heals him. He heals sick women. He delivers a demon-possessed boy. He heals a blind beggar. What we see is that Jesus is a Savior for all people, and in him all people have value, which is why he sets himself against the arrogant and elevates the humble. Because Jesus doesn't have first class, second class, third class, fourth class citizens in his kingdom. We're all one people. We all have value to Jesus. There's no one in this room who is less valuable or more valuable to the kingdom of God. And Luke points this out. That Jesus is for the outcast. He is for the woman. He is for the Gentile. And we see this carry out and true in the rest of the writings, especially Paul's, where he says, in him there is no 
in, in uh, Gentile or Jew, slave or free, male or female in Christ, but all are one. Because there is no distinction. The distinction might be in giftedness. We're all gifted differently. We all have a different role that we play in the kingdom of God, but we're not, that's a role. That's not value. As, as people, we put value on different roles, but God doesn't put value on different roles. I am no more important in God's kingdom than the person who cleans the toilets. Or the person working in the nursery. Or the person who's paying the bills for the church and writing the checks. It's all God's kingdom. It's equal value. And so... This is why throughout history, it's Christ followers who have taken care of orphans and widows. It's Christ followers who have built hospitals in impoverished areas. It's Christ followers who dig wells for fresh water and feed hungry people. It's Christ followers who stepped in during the Black Plague and at their own expense for their life took care of the sick and dying. This is why, because all people have value to Jesus Christ. And church... Our response to that is that all people have value. There's not some elite. When we're out engaging in society and people are far from God, uh, if you look at them with disdain, you are sinning. You're sinning against them. You're sinning against God. Because that person has value to Jesus Christ. You have value to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your hobbies are. It doesn't matter the way you were born. If you have a handicap or you're some sort of like ultra-intelligent in, elite personality, none of that matters. You have value to Jesus Christ. In fact, he knows how many hairs on your head there are. That's crazy talk. And when we start looking at people around us as people who have value to Jesus, we will talk to them differently, we will love them differently, we will lift them up instead of tear them down, instead of saying, man, I am so glad that I am saved, unlike those heathens down there. Shame on you. Shame on you. But for the grace of God, you'd be right where they are. We look at them with love and we say, man, this person in the trenches, this Satanist has value to Jesus Christ. It's like, whoa, what do you mean? They've, they've made their choices. How many choices have you made in this life that were contrary to God's will for your life? Just because they made a choice right now doesn't mean that's going to be their end choice. They have value to God. And this is what Luke is saying. Hey, Gentiles, guess what? A whole new world just opened up to you and to me. This promised Messiah who's going to redeem, who's going to love, who's going to come, who's going to carry, he's for us too. He's for us too. We get to go to heaven too. And it's not based on my, my breed or who I was born to or who I was sired by. Right? Right? It's purely based off faith and putting my hope in Him. We all can do that. Man, Luke, that's why Luke's gospel is considered like the best gospel for us Gentiles. 
It's a full account. And he destroys all of these, this system that was not God that Israel had set up of value and prayers and whatnot. I mean, it would be unthinkable that he considered Mary's perspective over Joseph's perspective when he wrote the gospel. That he would include every one of these that I just read to you today was unique to Luke's gospel. We didn't even talk about the Good Samaritan. Where Israel is supposed to be God's, uh, God's people, who God changes the world through Israel, and here's, here's this guy dying in the ditch. And the, the Israel's elite, Israel's best, just walks by him, and a Samaritan comes by. Not only takes care of him, but pays his entire medical bill and his housing while he's recovering. What is that? Luke points out too now that Jesus is for everybody. He's Lord and Savior for all people. I'm not saying that he's saving all people. All people still need to call on the name of Jesus. Okay? I'm not talking about universal salvation. But that it's universal opportunity. There's nobody that God, Jesus has closed the door to. Nobody. And how does that affect you and me? First of all, it affects you and me because if you're here today or you're watching online and you feel like uh, there's something about you that Jesus can't love, it's a lie. It's a lie from society. It's a, it's a lie from the devil. It's an it's, it's insecurity in your life. It's something, but it's not Jesus. Jesus loves all people, regardless of where you were born, how you were born, the decisions that you've made in life. He is for everybody. And that's the message of Luke to you today. Like, you have value in the kingdom of God. You have value. The other response to this is this. As you are uh, as you have received Jesus Christ and, and you're a follower of him and you understand the grace of God in your life, I don't know what it is. But there's something, at least in American Christianity, because that's all I know, that somewhere along the line, Christians start to become arrogant. They forget who they were. And they start to look down on people who don't think like them, believe like them, talk like them. God self-corrects us today and says, listen, I love all people. All people have value to me. And we need to check ourselves. That's why we come to church. That's why we encourage one another. That's why we iron sharpens iron. All of these kinds of things. We like to use those in frames around like theological constructs like iron sharpens iron. My, my wisdom's getting better. My theological bend is. And that's true. But the real point of that scripture is keeping us humble. We need to have our edges knocked off sometimes. Or we may find ourselves in the same category as the Pharisee, even though we don't want to be there. So it's a reminder to us today that all people have value. And when you're engaging with somebody in society and you find yourself looking down on them for whatever reason, I, that we, 
ask the Holy Spirit to bring that to our attention because we don't want to be that people. Because that doesn't reflect who Jesus is. Jesus is for all people, and Jesus has values all people. Instead of saying, oh, thank God I'm not a Gentile. Thank God I'm not a woman. Thank God I'm not a slave, right? That can quickly become our prayers. Let's remember that Jesus loves and values all people. And if they'll hear that, and if they'll know that, and if they'll receive that because we're treating them that way. Imagine if somebody who struggled with their identity, whatever that is, right? The hot topic in churches and the divide we have right now is over our uh, gender. But whatever it is, somebody's struggling. And instead of being met with, with what God says, conform, they were met with love and walk alongside. And Imagine what that difference that would do in their life as they're searching for who they are. They met a God who loved them and thought that they were valuable instead of a God if they don't conform they're judged and going to hell. Now, we know at the end of the day that when that person passes away, if they have not received Jesus Christ in their heart and a Savior, that they'll be eternally separated from Him. We know that. But I don't know about you, but God won me over by His love, not His judgment. I mean, He could scare me into heaven, but guess what? I didn't really, I didn't really want to follow Jesus I just wanted fire insurance. Right? Like, I don't really want to live that life. I just don't want to go to hell when I die. So what's the bare minimum that I can do to still get into heaven? And as a teenager, that's how I thought. Where's the line, God? How far can I go with my girlfriend and still be okay? How much alcohol can I drink and still be not cross the line of drunkenness? So we look for how close we can get to the rule, but our hearts are really far from him. It's when the love of Christ comes into our heart that we no longer are looking for that line we're all in. We embrace a lifestyle with him, and we're just loving God, and who ca- I don't care where the line is anymore. That's the kind of follower of Jesus Christ that, that draws us, and it's love that draws that. Way off notes again. Luke comes to us today and shows us that Jesus is, is, yes, he's the promised Messiah for the Jew, but he's our Lord and Savior as well. Every person he loves, every person has access to him. There's no hierarchy of values in the kingdom of God. It's, you're part of the kingdom. That doesn't negate your personality or your giftedness, uh, or any of those kinds of things. We all can be unique and be loved for it and do great things for God. But who you are, like, God loves you. You have value. And so does the person you work with. And so does your neighbor. And so does your, your family member who you can't stand. Right? So does the annoying person in your community who seems like they're just totally against everything you do. 
may that be our mindset as we engage with those folks. That God loves this person and this person has value, value to God. How can I lean that way instead of set myself against them? Last week I asked you to, uh, um, to bless one every day. Get up and say, Lord, can I bless, who can I bless today? Who can I bless today? Uh, I hope you've taken it seriously. It helps, it changes your outlook when you start thinking that way. I want to add to it today. I want you to add two people. Who can I bless today? What's one believer I can bless and one non-believer I can bless? Every day. How can I bless a non-believer and how can I bless a believer? Just wake up. Words of affirmation, buy a coffee, create a conversation, be pleasant, buy their gas. I mean, I don't know. Just you could be as creative as you want to be, uh, but not a negative blessing. Like, man, I am so grateful God didn't make me like you. Like, like, that's negative, right? So, a believer, non-believer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for so much, but I thank you that Luke brings out for us that, that Jesus is the Messiah for all people, the Jew and the Gentile, and that we can place our hope, we can place our faith, we can place our trust in Jesus. But also the nuance that of value that different people groups are not more important to Jesus than other people groups or have greater value or less value or any of those kinds of things, but that there is equal footing at the cross, there's equal footing in God's kingdom. I don't need to look like, be like, or anything else like the person next to me to be more loved by Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would internalize that for ourselves and then, Lord, it would change us on how we how we engage with each other and the world outside. That my value is equal to the value of the people around me. God doesn't love, value them more. He doesn't value them less. That we are all valued children of God. Lord, would you help that to just marinate and soak within our, our thought process and in our, in our spirits so that we would see ourselves as you see us, but that we would also see the people around us as you see them. And Lord, that that would affect how we treat ourselves and how we treat others. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you that you came to shatter cultural norms and expectations. And it's a joy to follow you and live for you in the way that you told us to. We love you and we bless you in your holy name. Amen. Amen, church. God bless you.